Welcome to the Paramedia Podcast with Mukunda Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Mirror Media Podcast. I'm Mukunda Raghavan, and today uh, we are joined by Dr. Edward Butler, um, who is a, a doctor, uh, I think doctor of philosophy, um, uh, especially focusing on um, kind of Hellenic and uh, a little post-Hellenic uh, concepts of polytheism, philosophy, and the tradition of Plato to basically, in some sense, the modern age and how we approach um, the philosophical um, underpinnings of polytheism and 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 basically Plato's uh, concept of forms and um, and things of that nature. So, uh, Dr. Butler, uh, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Um, how's thank your day you. going today? Oh, pretty good. Uh, it's a little jackhammering out my window. Hopefully you can't hear it. But, no, it's, uh, it's totally clear. Uh, that's New York City for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, how are you doing with this COVID right now? Uh, okay. So far, so good, you know? Yeah. Um, just, you know, um, uh, staying in, basically. Kind <laughs> of what I did anyway, you know? <laughs> I mean, you are an intellectual. That's kind of what you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It's not it, too much different. Is the city okay? Are you able to navigate it with uh, all the lockdown yeah. and everything? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think that, um, you know, New York City has been through a lot in uh, 300 some odd years. Right. Uh, and, you know, we're still it, going strong. It, it does. I mean, I'll just forget this point that we can get into your background and everything, but sure. it's, I find it's interesting because, I mean, you study so much of the ancient world and, you know, even into the Roman era. Um, plagues of the sort were pretty kind of regular. So I, I would imagine they dealt with it in similar kind of fashions. Yeah, having a broader historical perspective does help sometimes. Yeah. Uh, you know, with regard to a lot of things um, that might you, uh, get a person down. Right. Uh, you know, when you study late antiquity, I mean, you know, pretty much everything that could be thrown at people back then was, and yeah. yet there were still people doing their work, doing outstanding intellectual work, living incredible, long, productive lives, even amidst unbelievable, you know, mayhem and chaos. Right, right. So, you know, I do uh, draw a certain amount of inspiration from that myself. Right, and I don't think a lot of people know, even during the time of, of Socrates, uh, right after the, uh, the Peloponnesian War, there was quite a bit of plague hit the city because they were a kind of uh, um, be, uh, yeah. under siege for numerous years. Pandemics were yeah. regular occurrences in antiquity. Yeah, so um, jumping from modern age, um, kind of let's get into your history, <laughs> how, you, <laughs> how you got to where you are. Um, it's, uh, it is unique, especially in this world um, that's very dominated by, you know, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, even the concepts of monotheism that are influenced everything, even atheism in, in very significant ways. How did you make your journey into polytheism and what was your background before and education? Well, um, I was raised without any religion. And so I think that that gave me an opportunity to um, experience uh, all of it uh, kind of without prejudices. Mm -hmm. And so when I was little, you know, I read, you know, Greek or Norse mythology 
and I read, you know, stuff from the Bible. And, you know, I looked at it all the same way. I, I, I didn't see one as being, you know, okay, this is, you know, this is, this is, this is true or, you know, more important or, you know, it was just all the same. Right. And um, I think that, you know, um, as a small child, I was fascinated with mythology. Correct. Uh, it really, you know, it really spoke to me. And um, also, I think just with the images uh, of, of ancient polytheistic civilizations, images from ancient Egypt, images from ancient India. Um, and so I had that kind of sensibility right. that, of course, because I was a kid, you know, wasn't really religious yet exactly. Right. Um, and then um, at some point in late adolescence, you know, that just sort of um, seemed to kind of naturally blossom into something more. Um, and... I became a committed polytheist. Um, I, I became devoted to, you know, um, uh, first one deity and then, you know, others along the way. Because, I mean, one of the things about polytheism is that far from being jealous gods, you know, um, I think most polytheists will find that gods like having other gods around. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, it's like there, it kind of disposes one to start to, you know, offer devotion to others um, uh, in various ways through kinds of chains of association, through, you know, um, practices that you come into contact with right. in everyday life maybe through travel various kinds of ways um and it was only later that i got into philosophy because um i sort of uh i had a rather meandering path intellectually and uh sort of um in terms of what i saw myself doing as sure. a career I saw myself as broadly a creative person um, and as very intellectual, but I didn't quite know the best outlet for that. Right. Then eventually, you know, I discovered philosophy and it was like, yeah, I mean, this is where I belong. This is where I can best use the talents that I have. And um, that happened to be at the New School for Social Research. Right. Um, which is a great place to study philosophy, um, you know, very, very open to every different kind of approach. Um, and at first, I didn't see my identity as a polytheist, my religious identity, as being necessarily directly related to what I was going to do philosophically, because right. I just didn't know, really, you know, was this really a point of view that had a place in philosophy? Because just like a lot of people, you know, I didn't necessarily see that from the kind of uh, presentation that was given of philosophy in sure. secondary literature, you know. But what really changed that for me was um, actually the summer before I started doing my course, my coursework in philosophy at the New School, mm -hmm. I sat down and read Proclus's Elements of Theology. And 
I was really struck by it because I, I realized that, first of all, the way in which this philosophy was being presented in the kinds of commentaries and um, pre-digested presentations of it that I had encountered sure. was completely different than what I was getting from it as a direct impact of actually reading the text. And, you know, what I realized very quickly was this is a philosophy that is polytheistic to the core. Right. And that, you know, the whole essence of it, the whole point of it is polytheism. And so pretty quickly I was like, wow, you know, I mean, if this has been so little appreciated, this aspect of this philosophical approach has been so little appreciated, you know, I mean, here's a project that certainly I could undertake. Right. Um, and it was a little daunting because of the kind of philological demands that were going to be put upon me. But um, I was just beginning my coursework. And so it seemed like, well, okay, between now and when I have to actually write my dissertation, it should be enough time for me to accumulate the skills that I need. And so I pretty much set to work right on it. Um, and the whole time that I was taking courses at the new school, um, you know, uh, they weren't necessarily about what I was writing on, but everything that I took was informing that, you know? And I mean, as someone who studied philosophy yourself, I think, you know, you kind of know how that is. You have particular interests, but once you've been taught to read philosophically, how to read philosophy like a philosopher, you know, you can, uh, you can benefit from every philosopher that you read and everything that you read feeds into your project. There's nothing that's just external to it. And so this was what I found during the time uh, that I was at the new school was just, you know, um, everything that I was learning, the courses I was taking in Kant, in right. Hegel, you know, um, in American pragmatists uh, like Peirce, you know, um, uh, or, you know, Wittgenstein, it, it was all contributing to it. Um, uh, and so then when I finally sat down to write my dissertation, you know, it just kind of all tumbled out. Right. Wow. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a, I, I don't like the word meandering, but it, it is because you're kind of journeying through both the intellectual sphere and kind of a very There's nothing wrong with meandering. <laughs> no, I, I don't either. I mean, people find that word very uh, um, negative, but I think it's actually it's a good way for a lot of philosophers to do that too. They meander through their thoughts yeah. to 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 kind of kind of parse them out, right? And that's kind of yeah. like what a philosopher who isn't meandering is doing something wrong. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I, I really do. No, I agree. I agree. But I, I think that's a more analytical philosophy. They tend not to meander. They're just very. <laughs> but uh, no. you know, one of the nice things at the New School is that although it's a continental institution, you know, right. in, in, in quotes, um, there's always a really sincere effort there to um, at least be open to, if not incorporate to some degree analytic thought sure and you know i mean some of my teachers did you know um really make an effort in that respect and um in terms of uh, my specific sort of like subfield uh -huh. you know i'll say this i mean sometimes analytic readings of plato can be um refreshing 
because, you know, um, you know, there can be a smothering orthodoxy sure. on the interpretation of Plato that comes from the continental side. And so, you know, I mean, I found certain analytic approaches to Plato very rewarding. Um, Mary Margaret McCabe's book, Plato's Individuals, very uh -huh. hearts book, hearts and holes in Plato. You know, they're both coming from an analytic perspective. And I think, you know, really um, opening up uh, some important perspectives that were severely neglected um, from uh, the kind of continental approach. Right. I mean, um, I, also I, Patricia Kurd's book on Parmenides, another okay. example of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't read these authors, so now I have to put them onto my list um, <laughs> to take a look at them. I, I remember when I read Heidegger, it was a uh, his assessment of philosophy from the time of Plato onwards was so negative in terms of how how you viewed that they came came about the text, right? Like. Well, that's because Heidegger's, Heidegger's nine-tenths a Christian theologian. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I agree with you. It, I mean, I, I did a paper in... in My friend uh, Joy Deep, who... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Joy Deep Bogchi. He has a lot of great stuff to say on that. Yeah, because I, 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 when I was studying Heidegger, it was in my master's program in philosophy. This is like when I was in law school, um, which is interesting when I, when I read about uh, Proclus being a lawyer first and deciding this shit's not that's for right. me. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. I was like... Then Athena, Athena came to him. Yeah, that's right. Like, no, no. <laughs> no. And the wisdom of the law is kind of black. Aim higher. Yeah. Aim higher. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because when I first became a lawyer, the reason I became a lawyer is I thought it was like, philosophy and practice and some elements are totally there right like especially when you get into your rules philosophy and law is a very interesting field right i mean jl hard dorkin all those guys you know but I, I what i was i mean my point was like there's elements of even epistemology sitting in your rules of evidence right uh, sure. how how to approach Absolutely. any sort of testimony or any sort of like any oh yeah steps. so I, I i i found that interesting but a lot of the law practice ends up becoming more about social custom versus uh, any sort of rigorous logic. Um, yeah. And so I, I find philosophy gave me a large, a better perch to really look at the world. And it's, it, it, it is not, people think it's an easy or armchair kind of thing. And, and I, one of the things that always strikes me is philosophy requires a lot, a lot of self-introspection. I mean, I mean, and it requires a lot of looking at the world and trying to break it down to elements in which we can try to understand it the best yeah. way possible. And a lot, of, a lot of disciplines don't have that discipline to, to mm -hmm. do that in that sense. Um, so it, it is a very intellectually daunting task and, and you coming to this place, especially in such a heterodoxical position um, in your polytheism is very, very, um, reassuring in many senses that philosophy is still a, a lively place where the ideas as different and as vast as can be can still exist yeah. and have a place to engage. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. You know, I mean, you know, to some extent, of course, I think that it was, it was nice not to be at an institution where the focus was squarely on ancient philosophy all the time because, right. you know, I would have had to have a lot more arguments, of, you know, about my position. Sure. Um, you know, and so it was relaxing in a lot of ways to be sort of like the person who, well, you know, he, in terms of what he does in his own stuff, he's, he has this kind of abstruse project, you right. know, 
but uh, you know, he has some interesting things to say every now and then about Hegel too. Sure. You know, um, uh, but at the same time, I mean, you know, uh, I I think that the kind of institution that I was at, there was this kind of openness that you know, uh, people. Um, you know, people were aware that I was a polytheist. I was, I was quite open about it. I wasn't like, you know, hiding it or anything, you know, people, you know, the general attitude would be, well, you know, uh, yeah, you know, that's, maybe that's a little weird, but, um, you know, also interesting. Let's hear what, you know, let's hear what kind of a perspective that gives them. So, like, when you decided to become a polytheist, I mean, it's always difficult to Which say is, that. You know, back when I was, that was, like, back when I was, like, you know, I don't know, like, 17 or something. Right, like, right. Like, but it, I always find it interesting because people think, like, these are decisions in some sense. But they're really kind of more of, like, you've gotten there, in, like, emotionally kind of got there also. It's kind of more like, you know, I mean, for me, it was just kind of like, you know, I kind of got grabbed. Right. So, what... And looking back on it, what in particular really drew you to that position? Well, I mean, I, you know, if I'm going to be honest, I mean, I think that I had been going through a period of being uh, what people somewhat tritely characterize as a seeker. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was looking into a lot of things. Um, but then, you know, I had a dream uh and there was a goddess in it mm -hmm. and um, huh? <laughs> it just kind of um it it just kind of it made such an impact on me that it's not like i was gonna not you know it's not like i was gonna drop that thread right and right so i mean i pretty much just went right in and that sounds so right much in. like Parmenides, right? When he, when he meets... Uh, well, yeah, you know, yeah. I think um, it's funny, you know, um, people who have a devotional life, right. um, and particularly the kind of devotional life that polytheists do, where um, a god can come over the transom, so to speak, sure. at any time. Right. Um, Parmenides' poem speaks to me in a certain way particularly because of the things that the goddess says right at the beginning to him, mm -hmm. where she says, if I could paraphrase basically, sure. you know, um, don't be afraid. You're not dead. Right. Right. <laughs> Which I mean, I think has such the kind of ring of truth to it. You know, um, there is something so beautiful about the way in which living immortals yeah. engage with mortal beings. Uh, there is an infinite care, an infinite um, gentleness. Right. Um, uh, because we are such fragile beings. Right, right. You know, and that's, that's the beauty of us. Right. That's, that's, that's the beauty of us for them. Um, and I think you really see it in that moment where Parmenides' goddess is reassuring him. Um, you know, I know this is all a bit much for you. Right. You know, but she says, you know, it's no, it's, 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 it's no uh, bad turn of fate 
that, right. you know, brings you here, which, you know, I mean, I interpret to mean is really just basically, you know, it's okay. You know, right. You're not dead. No, I mean, it, it, <laughs> that, that entire dialogue to me when I read it, years ago it has the absolute marks of 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 a genuine first person theophany absolutely Uh, not at all a literary device in my opinion i think that it's it is as accurate a record as he could manage and we don't even have the full text anyway and we only have fragments of his text also right so so it's uh it's very difficult to to i i would assume to build a sort of uh literary framework with only parts of the text anyway so the, the well yeah and that creates a lot of problems in terms of understanding the philosophical import right but also if we recognize the validity of the first person theophany yeah that also changes the whole perspective in terms of the philosophical import because we realize that parmenides is is there trying to figure out the philosophical import of it as well right it's right. not just us right he's also trying to figure out what is the significance of this Right, because yeah. especially especially in the terms of the path of truth and the path and the path and the path of right. Uh, doxa, right? right. So it's amazing how few commentators on this text will take will even take a moment to consider the possibility that you know he is also struggling. Right. This is you know what if this is just as it was presented to him, and so people will say, well, where, how do these two paths fit together and stuff? What if he's right there trying to figure that out as well? I, I mean, when I read it, that's what I, that's what I got from it, that the, yeah. the, while the goddess is saying this, he's having this difficulty trying to understand what does it mean in our world? How oh. do we approach this? Sure. And he sure. wasn't laying out a, yeah. a, like a, a full philosophy yeah. of thought. He was laying that's out right. what was told to him and yeah. trying to figure that out yeah. as he's going along. Yeah, yeah, you know, and he's going to spend the whole rest of his life unpacking this. Right, and I mean that's the way that it often is. You know, a lot of people say all of philosophy is a footnote to what Socrates or Plato. I actually, in some sense, think all of Western philosophy is a footnote to Parmenides in many sure. ways. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, Plato, you know, I mean, the things that he says about Parmenides, Socrates, yeah, you know, famously says, you know, I mean. I prefer to think if there's something I see in Parmenides I don't agree with, I prefer to think that I'm just not understanding him right. Right, right. Um, I mean, which, you know, the the hermeneutic of charity um, is a very important principle and I think too little observed uh, by moderns. uh, I I agree. I mean, there's a few people out there I think do, do try at least in lip service and in some sense try like Sam Harris, I think tries sometimes and there's a few Mm -hmm. people that try it, but they only do it within a certain context. Yeah. And, they, and they're not able to do it. Like if we were to talk about religion in some sense, they won't give it the principle of charity and assume yeah. that we're talking about actual real experiences. Oh, yeah. when, it comes, when it comes to philosophers and the gods, yeah. you know, charity goes out the window. I mean, um, the article that I uh, wrote, uh, Plato's Gods and the Way of Ideas. Right. Um, which you could say really just has the very simple premise that we might try taking seriously what Plato says about the gods, most notably in the Phaedrus. Right. Um, You know, a pretty modest thesis. It's already surprising given the voluminous secondary literature on Plato that nobody had advanced it before. But journal after journal rejected the piece and reviewers essentially said, 
simply this is too this is too much even for me to entertain as a thought experiment that plato took these gods seriously right uh it's just too much and i mean some of the reviewers were honestly confused they were like i don't understand the purpose of this thought experiment i don't i don't know where he's coming from why why is he even doing this what's you know it's so it's so weird it's i can't it's from out of left field you know i just can't see the point of it um and you know i mean you know eventually after like you know i don't know how many tries you know i i i found a journal that was willing to publish it but i mean i think it's extremely instructive that you know just to take at face value right what such a philosopher says and i mean the statements of piety to the traditional olympian gods are all through plato right and, and they're all through socrates in absolutely. you know you know in 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 uh 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 in xenophon well, well, well uh, a, a part of this i think is a tradition of of over time both the judaic sources and the uh, christian sources trying to take plato aristotle sure. and socrates and appropriate them within their intellectual framework yeah. right yeah and in the process yeah. you kind of have to say if they believed in many gods then obviously they can't be part of the same lineage as we do they must right. have only believed in like one universal god right. and everything else was just like yeah. things they said or they didn't yeah. really mean it. it was a metaphor so which, yeah. which which i think is a it's a very dishonest thing to do about the the original sources because i mean he, it was i think it's timus where he talks about the the descent of the soul from the realm of the heavens is it is that timus yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, and then he goes into how the soul ends up reincarnating because of all this stuff. He's talking about a, a place where the gods exist and that the soul right. is once a God. Right. So he clearly has a sense that the divinities exist in some regard. And I mean, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's, he's very, you know, I mean, uh, 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 he's quite open about this in so many places. I mean, you know, it's, even in the laws, it's even right. a crime not to believe in the gods. Right, which is um, why Socrates gets killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, sense. I mean, it's not really, yeah, because, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, first of all, you know, the idea in his prosecution is that he's introducing a new, new god. god. Yeah, that's right. Um, exactly. By which, of course, they mean his personal daimon that he claims, you know, right. advises him, although, you know, rather laconically, just by just by dissuading him from things. But Socrates defends himself, of course, very spiritedly. And I mean, throughout Plato's writings, we see so many, you know, moving indications of Socrates' right. piety. He, speaks of himself as a slave of Apollo. Right. You know, he speaks of uh, the gods as his masters. He speaks of philosophers as, you know, following in the wake of Zeus. Sure. Um, it just, you know, I mean, he speaks uh, of uh, having consulted priests and priestesses to get their perspective on you know uh the philosophical implications of what they do right and he he takes what they say very seriously we see this in the mino um and also of course in the symposium where one of these priestesses 
is even uh, uh, adduced by him uh, specifically as as a teacher. You know, we can go on and on. Yeah. Um, and the question is simply, you know, why it, why was there this construct? Sure. Uh, created with respect to Plato, um, which had far-reaching philosophical implications, even if we put aside the issues regarding religion and the kinds of dispositions of power that were involved with that, there are far-reaching philosophical implications. If we take philosophical concepts like the one in Plato. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if if we take these no longer in their philosophical significance, but we take them strictly as being ciphers for a religious position, then, you know, one of the major consequences is that we blow a hole in the whole philosophical fabric. Sure, sure. Um, And with respect to uh, the doctrine of the one, you know, we lose the philosophical significance of the principle of individuation. And the major, you know, one of the major distinguishing aspects of the Platonic school in antiquity was that they adduced a principle of individuation distinct from being. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I say, yeah, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, this is going to get a little complicated, but, you know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and let's, right. let's include philosophers along with the fools. <laughs> um, okay, I mean, in essence, um, when... Plato speaks of the one, okay? We ought to understand this more or less the same way that we understand it when he talks about other ideas. Um, You know, what's the cause of things being beautiful? Beauty, you know? This is the kind of answer that Socrates and the Fido talks about as being safe. Right. Uh, You know, rather than going out on a limb and risking a reductionistic answer to important questions. Socrates says, you know what? I've learned that you start out with a safe answer. One that is, that doesn't lead us into reductionism because he wasn't impressed with what the philosophers who came before him had done because they were always reducing intelligible phenomena to causes that were of a grosser character. And so he was like, you know, and this is the essence of what's called his sec, what he calls his second sailing, mm-hmm. when he's, he sets forth again to do philosophy better. Um, he starts out with these safe answers. If someone asks me, you know, why are things beautiful? I'm going to say, first and foremost, because of beauty. Uh, you know, and then, you know, we're going to flesh it out from there. Right. It's not that he, it's not that he comes in with this whole worked out theory of forms or something. Sure. The, the initial move is just to avoid this kind of reductionism. And so 
just like all of these other kinds of answers. Well, what makes each thing one thing? The one, the one. unity, you know? And this is always the kind of way that the one or unity is deployed in Greek thought. It's always about, well, this thing is one thing. Right. You know, uh, from what does its unity come? From what does, you know, you know, what makes it hold together as one thing? And so what's important to recognize, first of all, with respect to the way in which this philosophy is often presented to us today, is that, first of all, it's not about, hey, there's, there's this one right out there okay <laughs> um you know that's pretty transparently just the kind of games that the church played the sure. prisca theologia you know this kind of idea that um oh well you know plato and aristotle because they have stuff that we want to appropriate we're going to say that they had this kind of privileged private revelation of 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 our god and you know this 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 made them uh uh okay uh you know they're they're not in hell they're, yeah, you know, yeah. they're in limbo with the unbaptized babies and right. stuff. you know i can't imagine that's very fun uh but whatever you know <laughs> that's only the catholics by the way not not you know not the orthodox <laughs> well yeah yeah you know well, yeah, I mean, you know, attitudes toward Plato vary greatly. I mean, uh, it's interesting that in the West, where his works were lost for such a long time, yeah. he's a kind of a fairy tale figure in That's the Middle right. Ages. There's a much friendlier reception than in the Greek Orthodox context, where, like, they still have his works, and, uh, you know, they're aware of all the kinds of things that they don't like about it. They have a much more ambivalent attitude right. toward him. Right. Um, but... Okay, so I mean, so it's not about this spooky one out there, you know, but it's also not about everything is one thing. Right. You know, um, because I mean, that just simply, that wouldn't get to the epistemological problem. Right. You know? the, the problem that they're interested in is, you know, what makes this thing one thing? You know, what makes this cow one cow? What, right. you know, uh, how does unity work? And that's why they say in the tradition of these kinds of safe opening bid kind of answers, right. well, you know, each thing is one because of unity, right. because of the one. So what is the nature of this principle then? How does it work? That's then what we get into in the kind of more developed doctrine of Platonism. And this is, a notably distinct answer than what we get, say, in Aristotle, who, although he's coming out of the Platonic tradition, yeah, in many it. ways is himself a Platonist. Yeah. You know, Lloyd Gerson has a great book, you know, Aristotle and Other Platonists. Um, certainly in antiquity, he was considered to be a Platonist who had these kinds of very important critiques yeah. that by answering them, Platonism became deeper and stronger and, 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 you know, more, more responsive to the kinds of questions that were important to them both. So, so let me, let me for, ask for, for Aristotle, you know, just to, just to sort of like, you know, wrap up the slide of thought briefly, you know, for him, 
he doesn't really like that the Platonists have a distinct principle of individuation. He feels like that's otios. He feels like being can just be the source of individuation for things. And that's one of the major differences between Aristotle and the other Platonists, as you can see from the fact that he ends the metaphysics with two books, M and N, you know, which aren't read very much today, interestingly. You know, people tend to stop with book Lambda. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the metaphysics ends with these two books that are basically, you know, about refuting the Platonists on the one and related matters. Um, because this really is the kind of key question for him, you know, um, uh, as a Platonist, right. what is the source of unity for things? So uh, 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 along this line, uh, you know, in, in Indian philosophy, you, in, in various Samkhya and yoga and all, uh, all these, they have, you know, a causation based upon either Satyakadavada, which is like the change is real, or Asatyakadavada, which is it's not real. There's no actual change occurring. And there's the last one, it's called Vivartavada, which is uh, it's only appearance. So from the one to become to ones, is that a real thing or is it, I, I understand in the, in the Platonic dialogue, it is much more the forms and then you have these things kind of some sort of a mirroring of the two, but how does, how, how would you, how would you conceptualize it? Okay. Well, I mean, in Plato's Parmenides, which for later Platonists was taken to be the dialogue par excellence where we really get into the question of unity, the nature right. of unity as such. The way in which later Platonists read the second part of that dialogue, uh -huh. where Parmenides and this, this boy, Aristoteles, um, ironically has the same name as Aristotle, but, you know, not him. <laughs> sadly, not him, uh, unfortunately. It'd be great if it was, but no. Yeah. Um, Parmenides uh, gives him an example of the practice of dialectic by doing this dialectical inquiry into mm -hmm. the nature of unity. And the way in which later Platonists read this is that each successive hypothesis, because it uh, unfolds a different uh, uh, conceptualization of unity, if unity is the ultimate principle of things, uh -huh. then each of these hypotheses is actually unpacking the constitutive mode of unity for some plane of being. And so what you're getting is like a map of, 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 of the cosmos, a map of being yeah. uh, through these different conceptions of unity. And so um, in terms of the question of, you know, how do we get from the one to ones? Yeah. Um, I mean, what is most striking about the first hypothesis of the Parmenides is that we end up with something completely negative as an entity in itself. The one in the first hypothesis, which is considered most strictly with regard to all of the characteristics of unity, right. we end up with something that neither is nor is one. Right. And so the one as something 
can't be anything if it's going to do what it needs to do for everything else. And so the principle of individuation precisely in order to do what it needs to do, to do right. the work that it's being posited for, can't be also individuating itself as something. And that's the point and of so, uh, you know, plotness, In right? a way, we don't have to have that transition. Right. So a Because we're just, we're just answering the question. We're just answering the question with respect to the individuation of all of these things around us. So, and, and this is, a, I think, something you bring up in one of your books that between, and we'll get into the gods particularly later, but yeah. they, come, they come either a little bit after or kind of uh, right around the time of the one. I mean, if you can use time in whatever context yeah. that. But is, what is the relation between the one and the ones then? Because if they don't have that, the necessary physical chain of causation, then what would be that relation? Well, I mean, we're not talking about a physical, we're not talking about physical entities necessarily to sure. begin with. Sure, you're right. Um, you're right. We're not talking about, uh, even in terms of physical entities, we're not necessarily talking about them qua physical because the unity of something qua physical entity is going to be a different matter than the unity of something qua form. And right. there might even be a mode of unity for things that goes beyond form sure uh you know because of course we have the problem of unique particulars right that's ultimately where the gods come in through the question of the unity of absolutely unique things if we could think such things right you know what would be the nature of unity that they would possess that's how we then get to the gods because we're not first of all approaching them as some class of being, but we're approaching them as the ultimate entities. Right. And therefore we're looking at from a question of unity, you know, what is the unity of absolutely unique things in the first place? Right. And for later Platonists, you know, because I mean, of course, you know, we don't know what the kind of discussions were within the academy very well because sure. you know the first couple of generations of the academy you know they're represented just by a real paucity of fragments you know but we know that already there was some kind of a discourse about what later in platonists like proclus are called henads right units and the sense of this is absolutely unique individuals right the primary products of the principle of individuation simply because they are primarily unique and basically between the first hypothesis of the parmenides in which we have the absolute negativity of the principle of individuation itself mm -hmm. and the second hypothesis of the parmenides where we have the unity of being, mm -hmm. which is um, which just accepts all determinations, uh, even contradictory ones. Right. Uh, basically, between these two, you could say, is where the gods, the henads, are located. Um, or we could simply say that they're there in the first hypothesis because the one, as something distinct from them, isn't. 
Right. And so we could simply say that that's where they are because um, with each negation that is applied to the one in that first hypothesis, each of those for Proclus represents then a positive determination of the activity of some class of gods. Okay. And so, so what you're getting is you're getting an unfolding of being through the activity of classes of gods who in effect by um, withholding themselves in the kind of negativity um, of not being determined by ontic determinations, by that very force of repulsion, you could say, are producing these ontic determinations as spaces that beings then can participate. Sure. So, I mean, uh, let me see if I can simplify it down for people that, you know, don't understand these things like ontic. Yeah, it's complicated. And, uh, it, it's complicated, right? Because, it, it, I mean, we're talking at some level uh, in a conception where physicality doesn't exist and time doesn't exist. It's more of a, it, it's, it's, I would call it loosey conceptual because it's very tough to even think about things like it's this. It's a conceptual analysis. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, it's like, there's no harm, I think, in looking at it because I think a lot of damage has been done to the interpretation of Platonism by people getting too spooky with it. Right. Too, too mystical with it. Right. Um, you know, and you have this whole kind of tradition of negative theology that's, that's in part at least built up around Plato's Parmenides and the negations applied to the one. Which, which where, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be anything spooky. We can really just see this as a kind of conceptual analysis. Right, which is the same difficulty you have when you talk about Brahman in the uh, Upanishad sense, or open Absolutely. in the Upanishads, right? Where they say, yeah. you know, not this, not this, is he's not. That's right. Which you can only talk about in the negative. He's not death. But can you say he's a life? No, you can't, because he's something that's not death. We don't know what that entirely is. So exactly. in that, in that exactly. sense. Yeah. And, and the challenge is to think along with this. Right. You know, to think along with this. And... If you do, then, you know, you get guided along to framing a more adequate conception of things than the everyday conception that you walked in with. Right. It, it, I mean, in, in some sense, like, we do this in regular life anyway, right? Like, but the, diff the difference is we have reference points in our mind. If you say this is a tree, what is that over there? then that's not a tree, right? But we're, we're only talking about it in reference to something else. And the difference here is the difficulty of, of, of having the vastness of something be limited. I mean, when you say something's not this, there's still a vastness that you're saying that it can be. So there's yeah. this realm of possibility that exists that doesn't articulate it definitely, but maybe that's the point, is because we just can't know completely what it is. But in that sense, I, I, my other question would be, so from a monotheistic perspective, people will come to this and be like, well, how do you have so many of these different entities that are, are basically boundless in some sense um, and existing, coexisting together? Is there not a different clash of wills? Is there not a different clash of ideas or thoughts? And you, you bring this up in your book and uh, one of your articles, but I kind of want you to explain kind of how you, you, the one exists along with, uh, again, with, uh, with uh, the henads or, or the gods 
in, in some relation, not actually not even relation, because that's one of the big things about um, the gods, right? Well, not yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the one really doesn't enter into it in a lot of ways. Right. Because, I mean, you know, if you want to ask the question of, you know, uh, uh, you know, how do, you know, the gods having different, you know, uh, a different will sure. and different agency, uh, you know, not end up uh, at odds with one another or something, you yeah. know, I mean, that's not a question actually, which even requires bringing in something like a reified one itself. Sure. If you did, you know, that wouldn't answer the question. And that's like, that's, so often it's kind of the case that like people will bring in an entity like this, like mm -hmm. a reified one itself. Right. And, I mean, the term reified, if people aren't familiar with it, just means making uh, something into a thing. Right. You know, from the Latin race, a thing. Right. It's like making something into a thing that we don't actually have to think of as something. Um, so, a lot of times the questions that bringing in a reified one itself is supposed to answer, it act, they actually aren't illuminated by it at all even. It's just that it's been traditional to bring that in at a certain point, mm -hmm. uh, to bring that onto the stage and act like that makes the question easier. But I mean, you know, the entire history of Western philosophy post you know, the point at which it became monotheist shows that actually these problems don't get any easier from the introduction no. of that. And so the idea that somehow, oh, well, you know, we had to introduce this in order to deal with these kinds of problems really doesn't come into play. So, I mean, what we actually need to be asking in terms of the question that you just brought up mm -hmm. is, well, you know, okay, you have many, you have many beings, you know, how can they be at peace with each other? You know, um, is that a problem? Uh, you know, um, well, you know, it's, it's not a given that they're not. And right. this is why, this is why Socrates expresses a certain skepticism with regard to at least a literal interpretation of myths of theomachy because you know a conflict among the gods yeah you know because you know he it's interesting that people will often say well you know if he doesn't believe in theomachy then he must not believe in the gods at all uh which is a peculiar notion you know i, I mean you know if we walk in uh with the presupposition that a multiplicity of beings are inherently going to be at each other's throats okay, well, that's a pretty Hobbesian sort of presupposition <laughs> you know, right. to smuggle in. Um, you know, I think that generally the platonic answer is that, you know, maybe beings like gods are a little bit less disposed to be at each other's throats than entities like us that have a lot to lose on the one hand, and on the other hand, also have a lot of factors obscuring right you know our recognition of what's actually good for us sure um you know given that it would be better to you know be able to just appreciate the beauty in one another which is what we see the gods doing in plato in mm -hmm. the phaedrus where you know they gather together at their symposium at their banquet 
and just enjoy one another's company. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a simple but a fairly radical concept. They simply enjoy one another's company. They appreciate one another. And in the Timaeus, you see one God, the Demiurge, right. who beholding the beauty of another God, the paradigm, you know, is moved and inspired by it to give order to as much as he can of other things, things that he knows aren't going to be able to necessarily live up to the same kind of uh, 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 way of being that he enjoys, mm-hmm. but he's going to He's going to go as far as he can in terms of, of imparting this to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to try to create as many opportunities out of the stuff of the cosmos for things to participate to whatever degree they can in this kind of just beauty of appreciating one another. Right. You know, the beauty of living things. Uh, of animals in this the widest possible sense sure you know just living things appreciating the beauty of other things as living things right um that you know we can just be with one another in this beauty which is that's the message it's 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 very simple but i think extraordinarily powerful it's it's both those things but it's also very interesting to me that, you know, the, this conception apparently is so hard for people to think about, but when they think about, say, heaven and life after death, it's, that's easy to think about. Everyone living harmoniously right. together, right. being together. But, that's I mean, right. the, the difference there is, again, they did the same thing that, that you said is a problem. They're regulated by the one because they yeah. bring in the God in that sense that kind of regulates yeah. them right but that doesn't take the problem know, away that's the thing it's right. like if 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 you need if you need some kind of cop out yeah. there to keep you from each other's throats then i mean you know, there's no point anyway and then there's there a cop for that cop is there a cop for that right. i mean right it's, and it's, i mean you know it's like you know at the point that you say that it's impossible Right. Uh, apparently, you know, for beings to just be with one another right. and not be at each other's throats, then if that's your presupposition, right. then you, the discussion is kind of over right from the start. If that's just, if that's just the nature of things, if that's, if that's a fixed presupposition, sure. then, you know, it's like informal logic, you know, I mean, you know, students are always like baffled when like you teach them F equals T, <laughs> you know, <laughs> F entails T, you know, from something false, you know, you can yeah. infer anything. It's right. like, well, you know, I mean, once, once you've taken as your presupposition that this is the nature of multiplicity, um, then, you know, the discussion in a very meaningful sense is over. And, you know, the same thing goes in terms of the ontology of individuals. You know, I mean, I think one of the most grievous consequences of the repression of the doctrine of the one in Platonism as a principle of individuation is that 
when individuality, uniqueness, difference, alterity, right. plurality becomes really urgently thematic in right. philosophy in the later 19th and throughout the 20th century. Right. Because of the repression of the Platonic doctrine with respect to a principle of individuation, right. this whole question is taken up in the mood of an anti-metaphysical uh, 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 train of thought. Right. Um, and so, you know, people are convinced that in order to think about individuality, difference, plurality, alterity, you must be thinking beyond metaphysics because metaphysics is just about the reduction of the many to the one, of the different to the same. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, all of the kinds of movements that are thinking about these problems chiefly see themselves as being post-metaphysical, yeah. existentialism, various postmodernisms. They they all see themselves as being post-metaphysical precisely right. because of this. And so you can see from that, even if you didn't give a damn about religious questions, uh, the profound effects for philosophy then right. of the kind of repression of this philosophical doctrine, where even if it's, even if it's a thin account, because I right. mean, I could see people down the line being like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so they got a principle of individuation, but you know, maybe it's a thin account. All right, well, let's have that discussion then. That's fine. But at least the whole notion that we have to break out of metaphysics in order to actually be talking about individuality and uniqueness and multiplicity as, you know, absolute phenomena and not some kind of uh, just um, epiphenomena, not just like, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, the, you know, the steam off the spaghetti or something. Right. I mean, this is, that's an interesting point because I think the Upanishads in some sense make the same thing, which is they all say something like satyasya satya, which is the truth among the truth, right? It doesn't negate all the truths that are out there. It might like it might be the unity of that the oneness among all all ones, right? It's yeah. a similar way of saying it of of having this position that even if you have all this difference of variety and multiplicity and 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 you you don't just reduce it to one because it you don't kind of negate the existence and the reality of those things and just say it's just one as if they're a mass and this is one there's so much variety in between that they actually have this dance or interplay or kind of this yeah vibe. and uh, by the same token you yeah. know it's not like we're saying that uh it's not like we're saying that there isn't um uh that there isn't uh sameness that there isn't identity that there are you know i mean the whole point of talking about principle of individuation is yeah. that not just, it's not atomizing. Right. Right. You're, 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 you're not saying either that, Oh, well, you know, there's just particulars and not universals. Right. No, the point is that there's universals and there's particulars. They exist in different ways. And the whole point is to understand this, not to say that anything doesn't exist. Right. I like to tell people sometimes when they ask me like, well, you know, What's, what's Platonism in a nutshell? <laughs> I like to say Platonism is the doctrine that everything exists. Right, right. You know, I don't say it's, it's, it's a doctrine of forms because actually, I mean, that's, that's not how it was presented in antiquity. Sure. The, the, the essence of Platonism is that everything exists. What we ask is how. 
Which is really, I mean, this is uh, in, in obviously, I mean, you've read so much Indian thought too. This is very different from someone like Shankara. Well, right? I'm still, I, I'm still just a student uh, with respect to that. And I mean, the, 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 the Indian tradition is dauntingly complex. And I think the beautiful thing about it is the subtlety of it. Sure. And, you know, the way in which every different side of a question is considered somewhere. Right. Uh, you In know, some system, it, right. Exactly. Very, it's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful system. And, you know, I mean, my level of engagement with it is still just that of, of you know, really, I mean, uh, just a beginning student. Yeah. I mean, once you delve into any tradition, it's just, there. it's vast. I mean, the, the Greek tradition is incredibly vast too. I mean, it's it's not just a... The Indian uh, tradition is more vast. Yeah, that, 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 know, that, that's true. It's like I, I mean, I think that I think that I can say, as someone who has looked a bit, you know, into Indian philosophy and knows quite a bit about Western philosophy, yeah. I think I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that Indian philosophy is more complex and probably more profound people are going to get upset with me about this but more profound in terms of having the flexibility i think to deal with every kind of issue well i think that there's a bit more flexibility there the, sure. the, the, you know there's a bit more articulation of the concepts you know and that's why i think it's so important to get uh, the kind to uh, to get the pollution out of the kind of process of comparison between yeah, and, 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 and so that's one of the things I try to avoid is doing a, a comparison on equal footing. I like to do kind of like they exist together in some sense and we have to look at where 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 their thoughts align with a disagree and not saying this is better that's worse and they have a better position on this because they approach it from different ways. I mean and the, I, I and that's why I tend to say you can't talk about, I assume if philosophy is approaching the truth and the truth is universal, that every tradition has its own way of approaching that truth and understanding it and, and kind of grappling with it. And sometimes they find similar ways to grapple. Sometimes they find different ways to grapple. We just have to, if it's the truth, it's the truth and it exists in a variety of forms for everyone. Yeah. And I mean, also, you know, there's no harm in saying also that truth is something produced. Sure. Yes. It's like yeah. it's not, you know, it's not necessarily a deflationary point as I think it's often taken. It's like, okay, either truth is something that we just, we just find. Yeah, and you're right. There and no one has touched it. You know, it's like, you know, it's, 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 it's hermetically sealed. Right. You know, um, uh, with due acknowledgement to Hermes. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I mean, or if if it's produced, it must mean that well, it's just power, and you know, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's something reductionistic. But I mean, it's like you know, truth really is something that's produced, but that doesn't make it less true. Right, right. And right. I mean, from my point of view, the fact that there are multiple truths, and not you know, one sort of capital T truth and lots of little t truths. Right. The fact that there are many capital T truths isn't actually a relativist point. Sure. Because if you understand that 
truth is not something separate from the labor of existence. Right. Then, you know, you understand that just as there's this multiplicity of beings, you know, through the labor of existence, they're producing truth. Now, now, couldn't you say just like the one is the one and there's ones, there's the T, truth is there and there's many T's? Sure. Yeah. Just, just by virtue of the fact that we can talk about something right. true. Right. You know, it's like, I think that a lot of times people don't appreciate that Platonism is very flexible because a lot of its answers are very thin uh you know i mean it's not for nothing that socrates talks about these as safe answers right right because it's kind of like it's kind of like the hippocratic oath sure first do no harm right you now first what does that mean <laughs> let's not distort phenomena right by not setting them off initially in their distinctness and saying, okay, you know, there are beautiful things. So what is beauty? Right. You know, there are things that are true. So what is truth? Right. You know, we're not necessarily presupposing by positing that a certain account that doesn't necessarily commit us to a certain account about right. what truth is. No, and, and I think that's and I mean, so important. The, the, it's just the opening bid. But we know that truth is something simply because we can speak about truth. Right. We don't just have to, um, you know, say uh, uh, such and such proposition is true. Sure. We can say there is such a thing as truth, which is a property right. of these things that are true let's dialectically inquire into the nature of different things that are true and try to understand what is truth by seeing how it works. Right. It, concept work. And that's, it, it's now, very sim, sim, similar to the Jain tradition, which talks about Syathvad, right? That the idea of, of, so they have, you know, they have the, the, the regular logic that we all have, you know, the is, is not, but they also have logic that's in between that says, maybe is and is not right and yeah. and they go into so they have seven seven different versions that basically trying to encapsulate as much knowledge or truth or whatever you want to call it as we conceivably can without denying positions exactly in, in, in entirety right so I yeah mean, sometimes and, platonism has been referred to as conciliatory eclecticism Okay. which I think is, you know, is kind of apt because right. you try to conciliate all of these kinds of positions. And this is why they ended up being so successful within the framework of Western antiquity, incorporating the insights of other schools and kind of being the last right. one standing, right. you know, right. because they could look at what Stoics said, for instance, right. or what Aristotelians said, and say, you know, with respect to this particular uh, family of problems, right? Um, this is a legitimate response, you know. And if we don't, if we don't overgeneralize this structure, then actually, you know, we can incorporate it, right? And being relevant to this particular body of problems, this particular family of questions, 
Right. I mean, it's, it's really, it's telling that it's lasted, you know, now we're looking at 20, 2,500 years, the entire school of platonic thought, right? It's, yeah. and, and it's still going strong. <laughs> it's, 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 it, it, it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Mutatis mutatis. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's had its ups and downs, um, right. but I mean, I think that, um, the reach of it has been extraordinary, especially if you take into account certain things that aren't always considered to be Platonism per se. Like, right. I mean, if we look at somebody like Leibniz. Oh um, yeah. Spinoza we, even. If, if we think of him as a Platonist, then, you know, we can see his insights in binary logic, which yeah. have been so important for computation. Um, his insights in terms of the calculus. Right and see them as being in some sense a further outgrowth of the platonic tradition or we could take somebody like giordano bruno who you know when the the new astronomy of copernicus came out you know his response wasn't to bury his head in the sand but it, to embrace it immediately and say yeah you know well you know um just as, uh, you know, the platonic intelligible cosmos is acentric or polycentric, which was something that he perceived because of his inherent philosophical acumen. Uh -huh. So too, you know, it looks like the physical universe is this way too. And right. so he was ready to accept that. He right. wasn't thrown by it. He wasn't phased by it. it he, he wasn't defending some crumbling dogma. Rather, you know, his exposure to platonic thought more than anything else right. was responsible for him being able to engage with that new empirical knowledge right. and incorporate it immediately. And I mean, so far in advance, of you know others who you know were still kind of grudgingly coming to terms with it you know a century or two later sure you know someone like him because of his exposure to platonism was able to take this empirical uh knowledge and not put a straitjacket on it you know not put some kind of an ideological uh, interpretation on it right away, right? But to be open to what it had to say, you know, and catch up with it, right? Right, absolutely. Um, so I, I want to jump onto a topic I think is very fascinating to me, and I think a lot of uh, my listeners who are a good amount are Hindus and and a few other, uh, uh, you know, different religions, but mostly I think it's Hindus and Indians, but they tend not to know. And I, I love the, the Neoplatonist concept of emanations and, um, and the flow. Would you, could you kind of explain that? And cause I think it's, it's so similar in some sense to Samkhya. I just, I hmm. think it would be interesting to think about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, you know, when it becomes, uh, it becomes a question of like, you know, matching up. I don't want to match it. I just want to understand Indian it. schools of thought. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, I, you know, my, my principle is always just, you know, I don't want to presuppose anything because I think that different aspects of, of, of a number of different schools, you know, 
I mean, there's a lot that I read in Vedanta, which, you know, resonates with me. Sure. Um, but I mean, to speak about emanation, you know, it's funny because uh, you know, people associate the term emanation very much with Platonism. And yet it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily a term that Platonists really use uh -huh. very, per se. Uh, you know, there are terms that, uh, you know, you could translate as emanation, um, but they're not necessarily used that much or they're used in very particular kinds of contexts. Sure. But what, what the Platonists do talk about is, I mean, especially the later Platonists, they, they talk about procession. Yeah. They talk about the procession of being. And procession in the most basic sense is really just what we read off from our concepts. Mm -hmm. what a concept presupposes as its own elements or constituents are what that concept comes forth from, from a platonic point of view. And so, so much of platonic metaphysics is just getting the logic right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really just so much of it, a careful conceptual analysis that says, this concept has as its presuppositions these other concepts mm. and therefore these other concepts are ontologically prior to it and you know this is what constitutes platonic so-called idealism mm -hmm. but i mean in many ways it's just a precondition for organizing our thought yeah you know i mean Parmenides, you know, if you're going to see him as sort of the, the fountainhead of, of the Western tradition, you know, he says, thinking and being are one. Or, you know, maybe a slightly more accurate translation of the fragment is, you know, the same thing is for thinking and as a being. Right. You know, as being. And so getting our thoughts straight understanding the order of implication of concepts is the precondition for getting our engagement with the world straight. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that, you know, platonic emanation, the sort of um, emergence of one principle of being from prior ones mm -hmm. can in a way, again, be, approached in too um too spooky a manner right um because it's really about conceptual implication and so i mean you know the simplest way to understand the presence of a principle of individuation prior to being is that we could say well you know even if something doesn't exist it's one thing right and so even if, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, the philosophers will talk about something like, uh, you know, um, a nonsense word like, uh, like blituri, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, or they'll talk about like a goat stag, you know, right, right. Um, you know, even if something like that doesn't exist, it's still one thing. Right. And so just by virtue of that very simple kind of epistemic insight, we recognize that there's a certain daylight between being 
and unity. Right. You know, and so too, you know, uh, with the further principles of being, the procession of being, it goes in the most developed form Mm -hmm. uh, from the one to being to, in Proclus, life, then intellect, and then soul, and then nature, and body. Um, You know, it's basically about a system of descending conceptual implication. Right, right. And so, you know, if we start from the bottom, you know, embodied things, they're complex. There's a lot of presuppositions involved in our immediate Mm -hmm. perception of them. And so if we just start to take stock of those in a carefully ordered way and deal with what's implied by uh, something but doesn't in itself imply that thing, implies more than that thing, has a wider conceptual scope, we actually move up a kind of a chain of what they call hypostases. Right. And we get ultimately to the first principle, which is unity, simply because nobody can think of anything higher, yeah. You know, that has a wider applicability. Right, right. Absolutely. I, I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, it does, I mean, I don't want to do comparison, but it does remind me very much of the way, like, way Samkhya thinks about procession too, in that sense, right? Like, coming from the shot down to nature to the self it's all about how those th- what comes from what right like yeah. you know, what causes what causes uh, your ability to to have intellect your your ego right your and then it, so it goes from ego intellect mind the senses and uh, all that stuff so it's yeah. a very similar progression of 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 being in the world and engaging in the world sure yeah. And it's because it's arising from the same kind of ordered process of reflection. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, you know, we, we, we sit down and we start to think about things in an ordered way. Right. And when we do that, we create these chains. Sure. You know, and if you really give due weight to the significance of that process, then you realize that those chains, they're not just in our minds because they're the possibility for the conception of anything that we might encounter. And so if you give the full cosmogonic weight to those chains, you know, and if you give the full dignity to that process, that ordered process of reflection. That's right. Then you realize that it's cosmogonic in itself. And this is why you get this extraordinary respect, which I think is one of the most powerful things in the Indian traditions that I read, this extraordinary respect for thinkers, for rishis, for uh, uh, the person who uh, uh, attempts to order their mind because there is something cosmogonic just in that effort. Right. You know, and, and, you know, it's there even for the person who doesn't get very far in it because 
it's, it's participating in that effort of giving order to the cosmos. Right. And this is how you get this kind of notion that people are somehow cooperating in the very cosmogonic work of the gods themselves right. by engaging in this. Because when we're trying to make sense of the cosmos, it's not just something that's for us. Right. It's for by the cosmos. By definition, you know, it's giving order to the things themselves as well. Right. So, which is, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if, if you know much about the, uh, on, the Greek, on the Greek side or the, the ancient uh, Hellenic side, but that's the whole point of the Vedic Yajna on the Indian side, right? It is to engage in the same process that the gods themselves are constantly engaging in, even uh, at a microcosmic level to affect the micro, uh, macrocosmic yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. So and think about, how, think about how much more poignant an appreciation we have of this process if we don't presuppose that it's all already done right by something else if we understand that you know us in our mode of being the gods in their mode of existence right. are actually by their very activity holding all this together, right. bringing it together, instead of presupposing that there's nothing to do because everything just is one, understanding that the unity that we can perceive in all things, and sure, we right. can perceive the unity in all things, but also understanding that that unity is an accomplishment. It's a participation. The unity of each thing is an accomplishment. Yeah, it's a participation in the... In existence, right at yeah. a fund, at the fundamental yeah. level, like it's it, it, in some sense, yeah, it's work, it's responsibility, it's which is why it's part. It's called dharma too in the Indian sense. Is that's something right. you have to do because the whole entire system is maintained by your acting within the system. That's right, yeah. and I mean, look at the, the 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 I think the compassion that this inherently gives us for other living things, right? Because living beings, you know, when we appreciate the constant effort of existence, the constant labor of integrity. Right. You know, each thing holding together itself uh, and holding together its world. Right. You know, when we appreciate that effort, when we appreciate those labors, I think that what comes of that is a tremendous spontaneous compassion, which is intellectual it's born of an intellectual striving and i right. think that this is what somebody like you know like spinoza means when he talks about an intellectual love of god right right you know, it's the way in which by striving to understand the integrity of things that is just spontaneously a compassion that's not born of a passivity of, of just a kind of merely emotional response. That's right. But it, there's actually something profoundly intellectual about it. Right. And, and, and the intellect is such a, it's so wrapped up in our emotive response anyway to when you build that emotional structuring, the order, 
then, then, then you start seeing the connections of the emotional connections that you can yeah. have with, with beings and people. And, you look at the word emotion. It, it's motion. You know, yeah. it's, 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 you know, it's how we're moved by things. Right. And so, you know, it's a phenomenon in the world like anything else. And so that's part of the picture because it's also a response to truth. Right, you know, right. We have an emotional response to truth clearly because something moves us. Right. And so, you know, we're not moved without a cause. Sure. And sure. so, you know, whatever moves us is real as moving us. And this is this gets back to this notion of Platonism as, you know, everything exists. Right. It's like, you know, of, of, of course, you know, why would we say like emotions aren't real? You know, if something, if you're being moved, something's moving you. Right. The whole point is just understanding what's moving you, you know? And furthermore, it's got to be correct to say that it is some dimension of the object that you perceive as moving you. There may be limitations to that perception. There sure. may be more that needs to be said, but that intentionality, right. the connection of something to that motion in you, right. there's got to be also a kernel of truth in that. And so we're constantly just trying to retrieve those kernels of truth right. in all of our experience, you know? Every experience has its truth, has its yield of truth, its right. intellectual yield, its intellectual payoff. Absolutely. So in, 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 in this polytheistic framework, what is the relationship between a god and the people or human beings or um, many gods and the human beings? How does, how does that work? Because I, you did a great article, which I actually thought was one of the most fascinating articles I read about polytheism because it caused me to change the way I think about the gods, right? The, the things you said, they're not gods of things, you know, because yeah. people are so focused on Apollo's the god of healing, Athena's the goddess of wisdom, right. and, and they, they think these are fixed categories, like they represent only these things, or they represent, I mean, can you explain? Just imagine if we applied this to humans. Yeah. And if we said, well, you know, so-and-so is a doctor, and that's that's all that there is to him and so when he's not when he's not being a doctor he must not even exist you know <laughs> he must take off his surgical scrubs and right. you know, just like vanish because that's just what he is that's what right. he defined by that you know the ancients didn't have this kind of perspective on the gods because, right you know the gods first manifested themselves to them in these experiences that were, you know, like the theophany that Parmenides has, they're, they're powerful, they're, they're kind of overwhelming. They certainly overflow the boundaries right. of whatever kinds of conceptions we attempt to put on them. And so like in Plato's Cratylus, you know, he, where he's talking about um, the kinds of uh, concepts that are implicit, the associations that are implicit in the names that people gave to the gods when the gods first presented themselves to them. Right. Uh, you know, what you see from this inquiry is that there's a mix. There's an experience of a being who's really other, but then I'm also bringing to that experience my kind of pre-existing categories and the kinds of concerns that I have and the kinds of um, also uh, uh, social concerns, right. the kind of needs that um, 
my my society, my people, uh, you know, the kinds of concerns that they have. We're bringing that to that encounter. Mm -hmm. And so what happens? We initiate a relationship. The gods manifest themselves to us and we initiate a relationship. And then from that moment on, everything in that relationship is part of the history of that cooperation. It's part of the history of that relationship. And this is why a person doesn't want to, uh, you know, right off the bat say, for instance, you know, that this God from this culture is the same as this God yeah. from other culture. Because, you know, I mean, even just on a very basic level, you don't want to take yourself out of that ongoing relationship. Yeah. You don't want to pull away from that thread. I mean, you can, but you have to realize that you're then moving to a different level of reflection that is potentially, you know, really just about our categories, our classification. Yeah. You know, it's like not every doctor is the same because they, you know, they do the same thing for us. Sure. You know, it's like, yeah, one doctor heals me, another doctor heals me on a different occasion. You know, they're not the same just because they have that common relationship to me. Right, right. You know, there's more to it than that, potentially. And so, you know, we just want to respect those kinds of threads of relationship that are established, uh, you know, at some point, lost in the mists of history or sometimes they're more recent you know i mean one of the things that we need to appreciate about polytheistic civilizations is that you know new gods do manifest themselves right and you know it's like sometimes i think people um they they're troubled by that or or it seems uh, almost uh, somehow uh i don't know absurd to them or something right but, I mean, in every polytheistic civilization, we see this kind of openness. Right. That, you know, we could come in contact with a new God. Right. And, in fact, if society changes in really salient ways and right. our needs change, you know, it's entirely possible, in fact, that we would come in contact with new deities because they will be there to help us in that transition. They will be there to help us recast our society in the ways that we need to. Right. And, you know, they will help us be responsive to the call for change. Right. And, you know, this is why these civilizations, polytheistic civilizations, have been so extraordinarily stable over time. Right. This is why millennia pass for them like centuries do, you know, uh, for more recent kinds of cultural formations. Right. Because they, they recognize themselves in change. Absolutely. They have this openness, you know, new gods come into the pantheon who always embody changing circumstances, changes within the social order. Right. But 
that doesn't mean that the social order has a break and no longer can recognize itself as being a unity with the earlier tradition. If you look at Hinduism, I mean, you know, yeah. the pantheon has changed a lot over time, if nothing else, in terms of emphasis of people's devotions. Yeah, you, yeah. you see with the Greeks, the Egyptians, like Zeus, Amon, you know, like these these gods, uh, the cultures when they met, the, the gods sometimes became like a joint unity. Sometimes it just, they sure. made separate. They, it, was, sure. it was a culture that, I mean, the way I yeah, saw All it, of these different kinds of options yeah. are available because I mean, you know, as a There Greek, was no break. That's, Egypt, why, that's why I saw I it. I could see, uh, you know, I could see these Egyptian gods as being, you know, I, I could see my familiar gods, you know, you know shining through in right. them. Or, you know, alternately, I could experience them as completely different and, and as new to me. Right. And, you know, we see both. And, you know, both kinds of options are available to polytheisms. And I think that, you know, it's another kind of important point that, like, it's, it's not like the only reason I can um, uh, accept or welcome the other person's gods, right? If I just automatically say in this kind of rigid way, well, of course, because they're the same gods I have. Right. You know, I mean, what you see is that that's not necessarily at all always the case, you know. But I mean, again, it gets to the whole point of of multiplicity in itself, and it's like you know, difference and something new, and you know this kind of diversity does not necessarily have to be something that affronts me. It right. doesn't have to be something that I explain away and say, well, it's okay because it's all the same. Right. I mean, again, you know, think about it with people, you know, I mean, it's like, if I was to say, well, you know, I'm okay with like people from like this other, you know, this other nationality. Sure. Because, because they're the same as me. And it's right. like, well, why is that necessary? You know, I mean, maybe it's cool that they're different than you, you know? Right. And so, I mean, if we look at like uh, places like, you know, um, like uh, Greece and Egypt uh -huh. in the kind of way that they came together historically, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you have people saying, uh, you know, Thoth is Hermes, right. you know, um, but you also have people like just adopting Egyptian gods, you know, and just worshiping them. Right, right. And, you know, and not not doing that kind of uh, that kind of syncretism. Sure. And I mean, already with Plato, I mean, you know, Plato doesn't do that. It's it's you know when he you know when he mentions the Egyptian god Thoth and the Egyptian god Ammon in yeah. his dialogue the Phaedrus he transliterates the names and, you know, he mentions Isis and the laws, you know, he uses the Egyptian name because I think that he's just not, he's just not presupposing anything. It's like they haven't come to him and told him that they're the same as, right, right. you know, as this or that Greek God. And so he's just holding space for that encounter with difference. And that's the, I think the real beauty of, of polytheism in a diverse world. Is it allows that for all of that. They're all holding space for that difference. Yeah, they're, they're allowing for the difference to remain. They're allowing for syncretism. They're allowing for, yeah, yeah. for it, it's, it's a very like- It has to do with the encounter with other cultures yeah. and it has to do also with potential change within themselves. Because right. 
you know, they're going to they're going to deal with that change within themselves by, you know, bringing these other forces in. And this is why every polytheism that we look at, the pantheon expands over time. Right, right. It never contracts. It always expands with time because this is how you deal with new circumstances is by experiencing those forces, giving them space at the table. Right. But it, 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 I mean, just in that, in that sense, it's so interesting to me how like the much of the Western gaze on India is the exact opposite in terms of Hinduism, right? They'll start saying, oh, all these polytheistic gods came down to basically three or five, and now they're just, these five are worshipped. And, and, but I, I don't think they, they fully grasp the, the, even when you look at the text, multiple gods are worshipped in multiple different ways. And, and you, the practice on the ground is in a village that might, might, have, might have one Krishna or Shiva temple, they have the local god too, you know, Amman right. or whoever it is, and they worship them equally. And they don't, right. they don't merge them. Yeah, and I mean, you know, two temples to the same deity yeah. are not the same either, you know, right. because even the multiplicity of aspects of a given deity That's right. are, are meaningfully different. The, the work of that temple is different. Exactly. Than the other yeah. And I mean, so, you I know, mean, there's like, there's like temples of uh, a Narasimha, if you know who Narasimha is, the half man, half lion, um, you know, the avatar Vishnu, there'll be one temple where he's in what's known as Ugra form or angry and, 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 and powerful. And the other one will be right. the Shanti form where he's quiet and subdued and, and that's right. And the, yeah. go to the temple for different purposes and different that's times. Right. That's right. right. Because, you know, and that's, that's the thing. It's like these temples, they're, they're there to do this work. Right. You know, and I mean, without being reductionist about it, I mean, I think it's helpful to see them in some sense as like, a, you know, embodying a technology. Sure. Where, you know, each of these temples has this very specific function that it's been entrusted with right. as a moment in this long arc of this relationship. That's right. With, you know, these deities and they've been entrusted with it. And so the importance then of these traditions and of not acting like, you know, you can just like change them willy nilly. Sure. I mean, you know, it's because you're not just, uh, it's not just this kind of bland uh, relationship of, yeah. of respect. Right. You know, there's specific cosmogonic work being done. You know, each of these temples is engaged in a, uh, a shared work between mortals and immortals right on behalf of the cosmos right and they are dedicated to these cooperative labors and you know you don't just go in and change some aspect of it lightly any more than you know i mean you see uh you know a building under construction and you say, well, let me take a look at these blueprints. I'm just gonna like, you know, right. I, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna draw in a few things here and, sure. you know, change, you know, we're gonna move these walls around and stuff. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, you can do that, but you have to understand that this is a cosmogonic work 
and a relationship with the God. Now, I mean, it's not to say that things can't change. Right. But, you know, at a minimum, you have to involve the God if there are going to be changes. Right. You know, and this is the importance of um, methods of divination. Mm-hmm. Um, and all kinds of uh, processes and techniques and procedures for getting people into communication with the gods because there are going to be times when we're going to have to modify traditions. But at a minimum, we need to involve the gods in that process. We need to approach them and say, you know, put, you know, bring the problem to them and say, you know, we're experiencing these kind, this kind of pressure. There's this kind of problem. There's this kind of issue that's come into view. Right. How should we, how should we modify the tradition? Right. You know, how should we modify the tradition? And so, you know, like, I mean, you know, of course, uh, you know, the issue of, 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 of Sabrimala. Yeah. You know, which has been much discussed recently. I mean, it's like, you know, um, we can be responsive to desires for social change, and we can we can recognize that there that that things that things have changed in some salient respect, but sure. I mean we have to involve the God. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and, and, and if people, the, the problem comes in when people just go at it from a point of view of, you know, I mean. I have a right. Well, this, these are just human practices and the God is just somewhere completely other, completely disconnected, or people don't even believe in the God, right. frankly. You know, instead of saying, this is a cooperative tradition this is the cooperation between humans and the gods between humans and a particular god right you know these traditions are tokens of the relationship that have been established over time right by the humans who were alive at that time and the god who has been alive throughout right you know now i mean the humans who are alive now are different than the humans who are alive That's then. Right. And so there's no reason a priori why traditions might not change. change but I mean, that's going to be up to the God ultimately. And it, and, and it has God to be, is in relation with us still. Yeah, and it has to be organic in the sense of, it has to be like, one of the issues I tend to have is with these, with these, I guess, larger cultural religious issues would be, we are taking the paradigm of assuming rights, 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 like we have it absolutely, and there's no right or, or existence of that deity that we engage with or that place we engage with. Uh, the, if it's a holy place, and there might not be a deity there. there you know, there's places like that, right, where it'll just be like a tree or a mountain that's, that's taken itself to be sure. in and of itself. Divine. Yeah, there's all different kinds of, right. and there's all different kinds of uh, the levels of divinities as right. well, you know. So, it, but, but it is, like you said, it's a conversation. And that, when that conversation is ripe for fruit, then it'll happen on its own, right? And, and that, I think, is like a way of the... Of, so yeah, always, We can be proactive yeah. in it. I mean, you know, I mean, there are, there are means for seeking uh, 
the God's opinion about things. Sure, sure. There are, there are procedures. They can't be undertaken lightly. Uh, they can't necessarily be undertaken by all individuals just, you know, uh, uh, right off the bat. They, right. You know, they may, they may be complicated in, in different ways. But, you know, there's always a procedure. Right. For getting the God's opinion, for bringing issues to the God. And, you know, nothing that we do that honors that relationship, you right. know, is going to ultimately be wrong. I think the only thing that's going to be wrong is if we ignore that relationship, I if agree. we alienate ourselves from that relationship, if we absent ourselves from that relationship, that's going to be a problem. But I right. mean, you know, change in and of itself has never been a problem. All these traditions, they've changed all the time, but they've always been informed by sure the importance of sustaining that relationship. And right. so, you know, just as we would do with people who, you know, if we were guests in their home. That's right. Let's say. And, you know, we... If they uh, say, take off your shoes, you don't just walk in, right? You kind of right. dialogue with them. Exactly, exactly. If there's some reason why I, you know, I, I want to keep my shoes yeah. on, then, you know, we can discuss it. But I mean, obviously, I'm not going to just pretend they're not there. Right. And I think that the danger is that we live in a very materialistic society. Right. And so things that are invisible, we're inclined to say don't exist. Right. And so, you know, this is why ultimately we place so many conditions upon the existence of incorporeal beings like gods. Right. Because we feel like inherently, if something is invisible, then it has less claim on existence. Right. You know? I mean, to go back to Plato, if you look at Plato's Timaeus, you know, he distinguishes between the gods and things like planets and right. stars because he says the gods, in the truest sense, make themselves visible when they wish to. Right. As opposed to these other things which are visible in their very nature. Sure, that's right. You know, and recognizing the agency involved in that. Right. You know, it allows us then to approach the gods with, um, you know, I guess you could call it a certain humility, mm -hmm. you know, which I don't, I don't use a term like that to say that our position is, you know, extraordinarily lowly or yeah, yeah, I... something, you know, I mean, but just the sincerity sure, that we would approach any other being with, right? or at least we should. Right. You know? I mean, even other, uh, even other animals, you right. know, I mean, we should approach them first and foremost, not as, just this kind of thing, right? you know, with an eye toward what we need from it. But first and foremost, as this unique being who, you know, shares, who, who shares this moment in time with us. Sure, sure. I mean, like, it, it's interesting. I mean, for me, it's not interesting, but it's my perspective, I, I myself am agnostic, but I, and not because of lack of experience, I just don't know what to make of my experience. I don't know if it's, if it's like 
if it's true out there or true in my head. I, I mean, I'm still working out those things and I've been working out, maybe it's a lifelong process, but the way I approach all traditions and all gods and all uh, respect is fundamentally from a place of respect. I will go in, like if I go to a temple, like if I went to the temple in, in Greece or go to like, you know, a Christian temple or I mean, Christian church or mosque, whatever, I go in with the respect that the institution itself requires me to. And I, and you behave in a way with that respect because it is, it is a space of divinity. It is a space of, of, of sacredness and sanctity. And you have to treat it that way. And, 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 and you have to, whether or not I ultimately know from a, from a truly epistemic perspective, whether such a thing exists or not, um, I have a sense that there's something real about it. And I don't know what that really reality is. Yeah. I mean, you know, from, from, I mean, from my point of view, I mean, I, I think that um, we misapply the kind of, questions about reality mm -hmm. uh you know um i mean we ask the questions that are pertinent to uh, some physical being sure of things that aren't physical no, and i agree so you know if like you know if I hear some noise mm -hmm. and I'm like, well, I'm not sure whether this is caused by this kind of uh, a physical entity or that kind of physical entity. Right. That's different than if I say, um, you know, this religious experience, yeah. you know, what kind of object it pertains to because by definition, it pertains to exactly the kind of entity and exactly the entity that it has reference to. Sure, sure. I understand that. And so, I mean, I just approach these things in a simplifying manner by, again, you know, I always go back to Socrates and mm -hmm. these kind of the safe answer, <laughs> you know, um, whatever someone says, however, you know, however this experience is posited. Yeah. Certainly for that person, at least, that is exactly how that experience is constituted. That right. is, you know, and the entity that is referred to that's posited in that experience is the entity that's intended. And furthermore, lest we should get hung up on saying, well, it's real for that person at any rate. Right. Well, the intention of the experience is that it doesn't just apply to them. Right, right. And so, again, without getting too, uh, without getting too involved in it, we can just say that, you know, it does intend to be something transpersonal. Right, right, right. No, I, I agree. It intends to be something that is uh, related to the cultural structure, you know, and the ongoing cultic space sure. that has been established for that relationship. And so there's not really anything that would lead me to intervene in that experience and say that it's anything different. And right, so right. it just, it, it is that simply by virtue of what people have already packed in in advance. Yeah, I, I tend to approach that 
perspective with uh, with other people's experiences too. It's very like it's it's very important for me not to deny the reality of that. Whether or not I understand it, it's not the not the point. It's the the person who had that experience understands it, and it's yeah. real, right? Uh, but I, I, following up, I, I mean, I have another question. I have a couple more. I know we've been going for almost two hours now, so I want to uh, you know give you time to have the rest of your day, but. Um, <laughs> What is at least in your uh, maybe maybe your framework of of the the faith you practice? What is kind of like the cosmological uh, framework of that? Is it is it, uh, it what's the purpose of human beings or or beings on the planet? How do we get here? Is you know all that stuff is? Well, that's that's a small question. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. Um, okay, that's kind of like life, the universe, and everything. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. I mean, I mean, we could do it now, or we could do it on another podcast. It, it's whatever is at your convenience. I have time. That's that's pretty. Um, that's that's a big ask. I mean, I think that inherently, I think that we'll have to get into that in a subsequent discussion. Sure. But if I just try to think about it in a preliminary way, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I would answer this two different ways, but two compatible ways from out of my personal religious experience and, you know, qua philosopher, Qua Platonist, I think that um, qua philosopher, you know, we're here to make sense the best we can of everything that we're encountering, because obviously we're on the front lines of something. Mm -hmm because the kind of being that we experience um, is this kind of constant succession of novelty, mm -hmm. new experiences. We're in this flow of time. And so I think that just given in that, given the kinds of beings that we are, our task is to try to make sense of it. Okay. Now, then... I think where relationships with living immortals comes into that is that, frankly, um, a being that has a continuous consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, a being that is eternal, a being that is uh, eternal in each now, in each instance of now, is by definition um, your companion mm. in this journey. Um, whoever else is your companion in this journey, the immortals by definition are with us. Mm all the time, simply by virtue of the condition in which they live, eternal, everywhere, all at once. Right. Um, 
And so it's natural that we would look to them and that we would discover the nature of being together with them. Okay. You know, and I mean, you know, I think you see this beautifully. I, I was recently reading um, the Kashitaki Upanishad. Yeah. Uh, and the passage with Indra in there, I think is beautiful. You know, it, 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 it you know, in some ways it reminds me of, uh, it, uh, of something like the Gita, you know. Um, these moments of being together with a God mm-hmm. and discovering together the truth of being. This is what we short circuit by the kind of like notion that the truth is just something that, um, that subordinates them rather than appreciating the value of the truth as something that is really there to be discovered by us and them together, you know? Um, and so I think that that for me is kind of how the personal experience and the, and the philosophical project right. come together. Right. And you know what? I, I, I want to spend a lot of time on that. Maybe next time we can talk more about the framework of the gods and, and, and all of that. Cause I think that's very interesting um, and very, to be honest, like something that people need to learn more about. Cause I think it's, it's time for the gods in some sense to come back <laughs> into the world that we, we live in today. Um, yeah. I, I guess my other, uh, my, I guess my couple last questions is there's so much depiction. Oh, well, first, um, is there a particular gods that you find yourself aligned to more as a person? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I, I, my, my patron deity is the goddess Isis. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I suppose that I would say that above, above all else, I'm an Isaac. Okay. Um, but I worship a lot of other gods too. Right. Um, you know, she definitely likes having a lot of other gods around. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, within that relationship, almost by definition, you know, there's an openness to honoring and engaging with other deities as well. Right. And, and because these traditions have been gone for so long and their practices have probably not been around. How did you find out about these practices or how did you develop them? I I mean, it's a new area for me. I don't know. Well, you know, I mean, um, I think that the answer I would give here would be similar to a lot of other Western polytheist revivalists that, you know, I mean, you really, um, you really have to discover it for yourself. Okay. And, you know, I suppose, you know, I wouldn't want to say that there's anything, you know, providential mm-hmm. in the sundering of these traditions. But I mean, I think it does give one more sensitivity to the, um, the nature of that relationship. Right. 
um, understanding that it can be sundered. Right. From our end, not from their end, but sure. from our end, it can right. be sundered and then be very difficult to recover. And so, you know, it gives you an appreciation for the effort of having to discover again, well, you know, what do I do to sustain this relationship? Right, right. You know, and I mean, you have to discover for yourself things like puja. Right. You know, you have to, you have to discover. And I mean, you know, it's like people who are, part of an intact continuous tradition like Hinduism, you know, I mean, uh, they, they really ought to value uh, highly um, the, the sort of treasure that they have of this, you know, intact continuous tradition that, right. you know, that gives you this kind of framework for the relationship already already established for you whereas in the west you know we've had to discover these things for ourselves and um if you imagine coming from a kind of like western perspective you know the first time that you put offerings in front of an image of a deity mm -hmm. there is a tremendous uh vulnerability that that demands i mm -hmm. think of um, someone coming from the Western experience and the modern mindset, mm -hmm. uh, there's a tremendous vulnerability involved in the kind of openness of that. And I find that a lot of people who um, may be open in a sort of notional way sure. uh, to honoring the gods, um, they'll stop short at an action like that, which is fascinating because I mean, it's not difficult in itself. Right. Um, you know, there's nothing clearly difficult about making an offering to an image. And yet uh, people intuitively recognize the existential weight of it in a kind of a deep reluctance right uh which i think is extremely uh, telling and very interesting in itself as a phenomenon the difficulty that people have with that because it's a sign that intuitively they recognize uh the reality of that that's that that they would cross some kind of a rubicon right uh, you know, in, in establishing that relationship. And it's absolutely true because, I, I, yeah. you know, you establish that relationship and what you find is that you're not alone. That something answers back. Right. right. And the relationship continues and it grows, it deepens, it seasons, it matures. Right. Um, and, you know, Modern people who have been inculcated to think of themselves as the sole creators of their of their destiny, right? Um, or if they aren't, it's impersonal, contingent, historical factors, you know, things like that. But the idea that something 
so profoundly other could be co-creating their their destiny with them mm -hmm. uh that's a lot for people to accept if they haven't been brought up in it right right i mean that's uh yeah i mean that's a lot i mean uh, i could still see people that are i've seen people that have maybe stepped away from their uh christianity or islam but they still won't do offerings or worship of, of a deity per se, right? They still find it to be kind of odd and off-putting and, right. and, and it's, it's uh, I, I think there's something uniquely. That's where people generally will draw the line. Right, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A, and I, it has to do with the way in which that affirms the kind of otherness. Right. And that's why I think that sometimes, you know, it's easy for people to go along with kind of, you know, the kind of talk about God in right. this kind of generic way. Right. Um, but what is off-putting to people about polytheism is that the gods really have this kind of otherness um, of really existing unique individuals mm -hmm. you know just like if we were to you know encounter a bear on the road yeah you because know we're, you know it's like you we're know, not made in the gods one image. thing yeah. yeah it's one thing to talk about bears hey there's bears in the woods right you know it's another thing to encounter a bear mm -hmm. <laughs> a specific actual bear right you, that's a different matter and this is really the difference between just talking about God yeah. and encountering a God. Right, right. Um, okay, so I want to ask a last question. It's, uh, maybe it's uh, controversial. I don't really think so. But there's a whole slew nowadays of video games, comic books, all focusing on gods, right? Like, obviously not the Christian or Islamic or Jewish God, but um, right. the polytheistic gods of right. the rest of the world. Yeah. How do you, how do you approach it? Do you find value in it? Do you find, uh, do you, is it difficult for you? I mean, I mean it, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a mixed bag. I right. mean, obviously, you know, um, the gods are present in popular culture because they're awesome yeah they're cool they're fascinating we're drawn to them you know because you know i mean one way or another i mean you know they've always been with us they haven't right. gone anywhere right and so yeah i mean you know we're drawn to them um a lot of these products of course they're not coming from a place of piety right uh, and you know, it can be extremely uh, vexing sometimes right. to uh, put up with some of the kinds of images that are, are put forward because of the kind of fear that's embodied sure. in them, the kind of um, uh, ideological agenda of othering right. that's embodied in them 
the way in which they, many of them are implicitly designed to, you know, create uh, walls between people and these entities to sort of make it harder without necessarily intending to, you know, to, to make it harder for people to think of these beings as beings that you might actually engage with. Right, right. But on the other hand, I mean, they do bring people to the gods. I mean, you know, um, you know, I remember, you know, when I was little, um, seeing Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah, yeah. You know, Clash of the Titans, you know, these these movies did model to me the kind of notion because you would see people for instance you know pouring a libation and poof you know the god appears and they interact with them yeah and so things like that were very important in terms of giving me a kind of perspective then you know when i would read myths right you know um you know, it would give me a sense of like, well, you know, I mean, if, if, if I could imagine myself in the place of that person, you know, maybe like, you know, what if I did something like that? What if I opened up that kind of line of communication, you know? And so they at least present to people that possibility. Right. I mean, the problem then is like, where does it go from there? You know, the things that I really, uh, the kinds of things that like, you know, make a person, I think, uh, angry is like, you know, when they open up that possibility just to be like, yeah, and then something and then something terrible happens, you know, uh, you know, because it's like, you know, these beings just, you know, they're going to use you for their own agenda, you know, yeah, you know. It, you you're just there's like a, a play thing to them and and stuff and it's like well i mean you know hopefully people can just get past that and kind right. of realize that like you know i mean you could say that you know you could say that about any uh a, a human who like right. for instance like you know does you a favor you could be like well he's got his own agenda, you know? I mean, sure, he's helping me now, but, right. you know, what what comes next? Yeah. You know, and I mean, it's like, you know, hopefully there's a kind of emotional uh, reason. Yeah, I mean- that, that, I, that people ultimately have, that kind of like makes them realize that like, you know, um, that's not what encounters with uh, 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 other beings are like. Um, right especially ones that don't have the kinds of uh, constraints that we do. And so, you know, they don't, they don't have to seek from us. Right. Uh, You know, this and that, you know, and I mean, I think one of the really harmful ideas that people get from pop culture is this notion that like, well, um, the gods are like, uh, they're like vampires, like, you know, needing our Prayers. offerings, yeah. <laughs> our attention, you know, uh, you know, to exist. Like, you know, we give them reality. And so they're, they're dependent upon us. Right. And, you know, I mean, 
that's just that's just sad i think really that's that's a measure of um a culture in which it's become so difficult to imagine something giving freely right right that you know um it says so much more about us than about them because it's the kind of idea is so alien to us that right. something would give freely right, of right. itself and 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 not have some kind of not be doing it out of some kind of dependency that's right i mean it's uh then you, then you probably wouldn't like most of the video games out there and i play video games and stuff but uh like i love god of war the video game it's really fun and interesting but it's because i already have the background in greek mythology and greek gods i can kind of look away from the nonsense they sometimes spew on that game yeah but. i mean you know um and i think if people are actually if people actually can get to a, a place of realizing that um, they could bring their problems to yeah. them, then uh, everything, all the kind of misunderstandings would get sorted out pretty quickly. Right, right. They, you know, right. if people could get to the point of actually opening up that relationship, then, you know, those things would get worked out. Um, because the difficulties that people have in that relationship. And of course, you know, people do have difficulties in that in the sure. relationship with gods. Um, they are ultimately fairly small, I think in the big picture. Sure. Um, you know, by and large, I think that when people put themselves in the gods hands, they're not, uh, they don't, generally have a bad experience right i i, I think uh you know and i <laughs> there's going to be people who are going to give me guff about that um you know um it, it what can sound like a truism or like a platitude mm -hmm. um from the point of view of of someone who's like looking at it from within a constituted continuous tradition mm -hmm. you know it's like when a tradition is completely in flux and it's 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 actually being rebuilt from the ground up right you know lots of kinds of questions come up and people do have very complicated relationships yeah yeah i can totally imagine. um with the gods when there aren't um guardrails so to speak of right. tradition um and people can get in over their heads um you know if you use the example of a bear, you know, it's like, you know, um, the bear isn't necessarily going to eat you, but, um, you know, you do have to kind of respect the force of nature that the bear is. Right. Uh, you know, sometimes people are not in a good position to understand what interaction with a god could do in their lives. But... You know, ultimately, my position would be that the gods only do good by us. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, last question: um, How do you how do you take the term pagan or or, or paganism applied to you or the new uh, revival of polytheism um, to be? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, pagan is a term that. Uh, people have taken up 
as a way of revaluing something that was pejorative. Right. Um, you know, in somewhat the way that people have revalued a term like queer, you know, um, you recognize the history of a struggle by saying, you know, at a certain point, yes, you know, I am that thing that, right. uh, that, that you have disdained, that, you know, that thing that you have called me and, and in your mind was an insult you know, I am that thing. I own that thing. Right. But then on the other hand, there's also obviously a process of, of recognizing that, you know, you're more than that projection. Sure. Um, so pagan is a term that it's important to understand the history there. Um, I think that a lot of times, um, People will say that the sense of it is uh, rustic um, or perhaps a little bit more precisely um, the sense of being a civilian rather than someone who's part of the army of Christ. Um, what we see, I think, to get philological about it is that the term appears to be the Latin equivalent of the term which is used to refer to um, uh, the non-Christian and non-Judaic peoples in the Greek New Testament where they're referred to as ta-ethne, the nations. The nations, yeah. And so as opposed to the Catholic Church, which is catholicos, universal, Mm -hmm. the universal church, these people continue to worship the gods of their nations. And pagus, in this sense, a Latin term, which means like a district, you know, it's the same root that we see in like the French word pays, which means country or nation, but also can mean like countryside, paysage. Mm -hmm. um, but the kind of essence of it is people who worship the gods of particular nations as opposed to being part of the universal catholicos mm -hmm. church um so the original sense of pagan is in a way kind of descriptive but it's also reductionist right um because of course you know people didn't just worship the gods of their nation um but, you know, I mean, there's also some truth to saying that, you know, they did worship gods who had a kind of historical relationship. Sure. With this or that nation, this or that culture, this or that language, you know, because, you know, these gods weren't separate from the world to the degree that, you know, they infused all of these traditions. They were really present in all right. these traditions. And so, you know you couldn't just put them aside and say, okay, you know, I'm just doing this other thing now. Right. So, I mean, there is a kind of a sense to it that's, that's, that's valid, but um, within the history of the Western polytheist revival, what happened at a certain point was that as um, the movement kind of reached a certain maturity, right people began to uh, talk in a more nuanced way about what they actually believed and what they were actually doing. And 
at that point, somewhere in the early 2000s, people began to call themselves polytheists in order to affirm that they believed in actual gods and worshipped actual gods, mm -hmm. as opposed to people who um, participated in so-called pagan rituals, um, but didn't actually believe in any gods. Right. Um, and so this became a schism of sorts uh, within the Western movement. And this is why at some point, in the early 2000s, um, people began identifying themselves as polytheists. Right. Um, in order to like make this distinction um, because there were people saying, well, you know, um, I'm a pagan, I've been a pagan, I've been participating in these kinds of like group rituals and stuff all along and I didn't sign up for anything that involved actual gods you know i'm not i'm not down with that and so you know there became then this kind of distinction and um it still is a kind of a schism in some ways uh and so that adds an extra kind of element of complication right to the term pagan because you know um I wouldn't be that anxious to begin with to say to people who are part of large continuous traditions, you should start calling yourself pagan because, right. you know, it, it, there's no reason for them to identify their traditions by anything other than the terms that they've always used. Right. All that we need, you know, we don't need to think of all of these religions as being one religion. Hinduism and, you know, Chinese, traditional Chinese yeah. and Taoism and Shintoism from Japan and so-called Korean shamanism and all of the indigenous traditions of Africa and Oceania and right. Australia and the Americas. We don't need to think of these. It would be bizarre to think of them as one religion. That's right. All that we need is a, is a very loose, very thin umbrella term that enables us to have alliances to make common cause uh, against, you know, common problems and challenges mm -hmm. um, and recognize ourselves as part of a family of religions. Sure. But not one religion. And right. so I think that sometimes the problem with using a term like paganism is that it, you know, it starts to sound like we're saying that, these are all one religion, and of right. course they're not. And so polytheism, you know, it's, you know, the sort of colorlessness of it, I think, is kind of an advantage because right. it's just a way of saying um, this kind of very loose family of religions that just have in common um, that they accumulate relationships with gods as they discover them. Right. You know, that they just kind of go with the flow of these theophanies. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, when one happens, they just kind of preserve it 
you know, like a, like a flame, you know, they just kind of shelter it and keep the wind from blowing it out. Right. You know, and, and, and sustain it. Until it and grows. <laughs> really just that kind of, that kind of relationship is actually what these traditions have in common. Right. And, right. you know, um, there's just not an easy term for that. Uh, you know, I've said in the past that I think that polytheism just is theism. Um, and that, that monotheism is something different and, you know, um, something, you know, in some ways akin to atheism, which is also something different that polytheism just is theism because right. it's just the way of the gods, you know, uh, the name Shinto comes from ultimately from Chinese Shen Dao, the way of gods. Yeah. You know, and as a kind of a descriptor, and in some other traditions, you will find like similar kinds of terms that just yeah. refer to kind of, you know, that, that religion that consists in just kind of engaging with the gods and just following where that leads you. Right. Just going, going along with the gods, being with the gods. No. I mean, that's, I, yeah, I, I would agree. I'd agree there's a common cause. I agree that... There's a lot that could be done if we kind of just build the umbrella and, and kind of connect together because there is, yeah. I mean, in, in some sense, I mean, it's, it's still with all these different faiths, it's still less than, you know, the mon monotheistic faiths are very, very insulated in how they approach, you know, um, all of us. Every indigenous polytheism in the world today is critically endangered. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Dr. Butler, thank you so much for your time. I, I, there's a lot, more, a lot more questions I have, but we're like two and a half hours in and I'm like, let's, uh, let yeah, just... I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I have a name, but uh, other than that, I, I, there's just like, I know this can go for another two hours because I have a whole host of questions just on the theology. I wouldn't have a voice left. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I have a lot of questions on the theology. Uh, the Hellenistic theology, and then, and well, then I, we'll do this. We'll do this again. Yes, absolutely. Is there anything that you want to? Well, actually, before you, you we get off, I just want to talk about your books real quick, so that my audience can know them. There's the the three books I've read, guys, are essays on metaphysics of polytheism in Proclus by uh, Dr. Butler. Uh, the other one, he has an article in this book called Ascendant: Modern Essays on Polytheism and Theology. And finally, his essays, uh, essays on Hellenic, uh, Hellenic theology. Um, you should check those out, get them on Amazon or wherever else. Well, They're yeah, fantastic. and also if you, uh, if people go to my site, henetology.wordpress.com, yeah. um, they can find lots of my work available there, uh, you know, um, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, the books are, are nice if people, you know, want, you know, something, you know, physical to hold in their hands right. and read by the pool, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, I like that pool you got. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but, um, uh, you know, people can read a lot of my work for free on my site. 
Um, and so you'll put up a link or sure. Something. I'll put up a link um, to your website because, um, tremendous amount available there. Um, uh, also there, a huge work I did years ago, uh, in Egyptian theology, um, theological encyclopedia of the goddesses and gods of the ancient Egyptians, oh, um, which, um, I'm going to be coming out with in paperback form at some point uh, soon. Okay. Um, but uh, it's there as, as, as a resource for people and um, a really great way of uh, learning something about that pantheon of gods. Um, and it was a real labor of love for me and, and something that has become uh, a valuable resource, I think, for a lot of other people worshiping those gods. Um, so that's all available uh, from my, my site, henatology.wordpress.com. Yeah, I'll, I'll put the link into the video and the podcast. But uh, once again, thank you for your time, uh, doctor. Thank you. Um, all right, guys, we will catch up with you in a week or so. Um, and... Ah. Uh -huh.